Turn your Bible, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Our text is verses 6 through 11, but I'll read, um, I'll read chapter 1, starting in verse 1, just for some context here. This is Luke's uh, second major work in the New Testament, um, writing to Theophilus and speaking now of things that, that, that have happened since the resurrection of Jesus. You know we're in a, a series right now on the Apostles' Creed. Um, this week, we're looking at that section of the Creed that talks about Um, And I believe that he ascended into heaven, that Jesus bodily ascended into heaven. Uh, So let's have that in our minds as we consider uh, and hear and respond to the word of God this morning. I would invite you to stand if you would. And let's hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men standing by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we sang in prayer at the start of our worship, so we pray again, speak. Speak, O Lord. Teach us. Subdue us. Rule over us. For you are good. You are kind. And you are gracious. And where else can we go? Because you are the one who has given and spoken words of life. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So let's be reminded about why a series on the Apostles' Creed. Again, As you've heard me say several weeks now, the creed is this settled belief of the entire church. Any church that bears the name of Jesus, it would be a Christian church 
that we would recognize uh, in, in, in the world is a church that at its core believes the things that are spoken and contained, enumerated, summarized in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, I say all this uh, because we live in a day and an age and a time where there is incredible division. There is incredible, um, there, there's incredible uh, breaches in, in the various communities in which we live. And, and sadly, this even happens in the church as well. So part of this is to really understand what are the non-negotiables? What must we believe? What can we debate? And what's left up to your personal preference? These are the things that are not left open for debate. These are the things that are the settled view of the entire church. And if there's disagreement on these things, um, there is no fundamental possibility for unity. Okay? Not that we can say it that, not that we can always say things that strongly, but that's where it is. Um, as we look at this text this morning, I want to give you this uh, as, a, as a backdrop. If you'll consider literature with me for just a moment, literature like in the, in the classical forms of literature, literature in the, in the forms such as like uh, um, plays or anything else. Up until the time of Jesus, most everything that was written or acted were tragedies. What were tragedies? Tragedies were something where inevitably the audience at the end leaves in tears, okay? Something has happened to the major character and the audience leaves in tears. Here's what's interesting though. Right around the time of the church, right around the time of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, you can go back and look at the way literature began to change, the way that drama began to change, and there was something different. Now, the other form of literature, there's tragedy and then there's comedy, right? In comedy, here's the way those would typically work. In comedy, um, the audience would leave laughing, but as the curtain dropped, everyone on stage would be crying because they were humiliated. But something different happened. Now, at the time of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, literature began to change. W.B. Yeats notes that, the, that tragedy is at the heart of classical civilization, comedy at the heart of the Christian one. W.H. Auden observes that even Greek comedies retain the strong element of tragedy. Um, so that's kind of that thing that we were talking about, where in Greek comedies, audience is laughing, those on stage are crying. What happens in, when, when Christianity starts to infiltrate into the, into the cultural uh, parts of society? Now, all of a sudden, as, as one scholar says, um, in classical comedy, the characters are exposed and punished. When the curtain falls, the audience laughs and those on stage are in tears. In Christian comedy, the characters are exposed and forgiven. When the curtain falls, the audience and the characters are laughing together. What in the world could possibly change how people viewed the world? how Christians interacted. I mean, these were, these were fishermen. These were, these were not people that you would expect to carry on a revolution. And yet these are the people that went forth with the laughter of heaven. Not as those being mocked, but as those being loved. 
And I want to, I want to contend for you today that the, that the ascension of Jesus, though often not talked about in the church, the reason that it bears a place in the Apostles' Creed and it should bear weight on our lives is because of the, uh, the radical implications that the ascension carries with it. So that's the first thing I really want to consider with you this morning is why is the ascension essential? We're going to do this uh, thinking about what's presented to us in, in this text by looking at words that begin with I. So if you like alliteration, you're in luck. And if you don't like alliteration, I'm sorry. Here's the first thing that I want you to see about why the ascension is essential, and that is the word incarnation. Now, some might say, wait a minute, incarnation, this has everything to do with that season with all the holly and the ivy and not much to do now, but wait. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when said these things, speaking to his disciples, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from from you into heaven, will come again, how? In the same way as you saw him go. I want, to, I want to propose to you, that's not just talking about a mode of transportation. But this body of Jesus that went to heaven, he doesn't exchange. His body was not a loner or a rental. This now Jesus of Nazareth is seated at God's right hand, enthroned in heaven. Um, our flesh is now in the heavenly realm with the Lord. In the book, Jesus Ascended, the author states this. Through the ascension, we discover that the incarnation continues. Jesus remains united to our human nature. If Jesus's new life does not continue, then he could have died again. The resurrection requires an ascension in order to be completed, in order to put it more bluntly than that. If Jesus did not go up as a man, he cannot come again as a man. The judge would not be our brother, not the one tempted in all ways as we are, not the man with the nail-scarred hands and the rich wounds yet visible above. He must be God in that case, but he would not be human and we would be lost. If Jesus' humanity does not continue, then we have no hope, for we have no advocate. We have not one who has been tempted and tried as we are yet without sin. Jesus' incarnation still continues. The wounds that he bore in his flesh, he carries for eternity. Those nail-scarred hands are the visible reminders, not that he would forget, but those visible reminders of the people that he loves. It is not for a moment that Jesus would ever forget about you. It is not for a moment that Jesus would ever lose thought of you because those wounds he carries with him even now. And as so, as Jesus is in his body, We are never without 
him. He has never, he has never taken and put us out of his mind. The resurrected life that he carries in his flesh he now carries, is now his for eternity. Where he is, there also we shall be. So that's the first I word. Here's the second I word. We're going to go back to the, uh, the conversation that the disciples were having with Jesus and the question that they asked him. The question that they asked him was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So um, it's out of this question and kind of the witness of the rest of the New Testament. Jesus didn't say, um, Jesus didn't scold them for asking the question. He did say, well, the time is not for you to know. But then he goes on and just tells them, but here's what's going to, here's what is going to happen. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something for you and to you that's going to change. It's going to revolutionize the way the world happens. So second I word is this word inauguration. Now inauguration for us here in the States uh, is, uh, you know, not a word that we, uh, that we like or use that often. It still gives us kind of the twitch about um, Brexit 1.0 in 1776 when, when kings and queens were inaugurated. Uh, but it's still helpful to realize that an inauguration is, is when a ruler, when a, uh, when a monarch, when a, when a king or a queen is enthroned. And when Jesus left his disciples at that moment, he was thus then inaugurated as the king. Now, we don't see that, right? Because we have the view of the text from below the clouds. All the disciples saw was he was there, he was taken up, he was gone. So they didn't really get to see what happened there, but another one did. In Daniel chapter 7, if Acts 1 was the view of what happened from beneath the clouds, Daniel chapter 7 is the view of what happened above the clouds, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The apostles saw here on the earth what happened was that Jesus was taken up into the clouds, but Daniel saw something else. Daniel saw the enthronement of King Jesus. Daniel saw him now being given a kingdom that shall have no end, an everlasting dominion, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is a witness to the enthronement and coronation of Jesus as king. It's a scene of victorious triumph and glorious worship. Dumbfounded in the moment because the cloud is blocking his view, the apostle Peter comes to understand this. And in fact, he would then use what is the most uh, oft-quoted uh, Old Testament verses in all the New Testament. In Acts 2.35 Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, not only in flesh, not only incarnated, still maintaining that his union with our humanity, Jesus is now inaugurated as the king, the one for whom all things exist. 
Jesus has taken his place at the right hand of the Father. He has vanquished all the powers. In his person, he has carried human nature up into the presence of God the Father. Ascension points to the fact that the whole cosmos has been reorganized around Jesus of Nazareth. Think about that. The whole universe has been reorganized and given to the carpenter where it was once asked, what good comes out of Nazareth? The king comes out of Nazareth. Last I word. Last I word in terms of why the the ascension is essential. Not only is it because um, the incarnation continues. And not only is it because the king has been inaugurated, but the third reason the ascension is absolutely critical, absolutely essential, fundamental to your and yours and my life is because of this last I word, institution. Institution. Now, again, another one of those words that we don't necessarily like. There is some skepticism these days about institutions and in general. But look, the disciples were asking Jesus this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So something, was been, something had been lost and the kingdom needed a vessel. The kingdom needed an institution. And so the disciples were looking to Jesus to say, are you going to establish Israel as this institution that's going to carry on your kingdom? But just as Jesus had to go, uh, had to, go to, uh, to, 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 to heaven so that he would not be a king like all the other kings, so also this institution, this thing that would carry the kingdom had to be an institution unlike anything else. And it wasn't going to be a geopolitical one. It wasn't going to be an ethnic one. It was going to be a global one. It was going to be the church. We see that this really is when the church was first given birth because Jesus left Why did he have to leave? So that the Spirit would be poured out on his disciples. The kingdom isn't restored to Israel. It's realized through the church. Chris Gansky, in a journal article uh, writing for Cardus, uh, for Comment Magazine, uh, says this. He says, ascension means that the church is foremost an institution defined by mission. Today, all institutions have a mission, a statement of mission. But to say the church is defined by mission is to say something more. Listen, the church is not an institution with a mission, but a mission with an institution. Or as more eloquently put by Emil Brunner, the church exists for mission like a fire exists for burning. The establishment and mission of the church is grounded in ascension because mission is the natural response to the reality of Jesus' universal reign. What he means by that is, if Jesus is king, if the incarnation continues, if flesh is now in the heavenly places seated at God's right hand, if Jesus of Nazareth, if the whole cosmos has been reorganized around him, then the church's natural response to the rule and reign of Jesus the king is now a mission. It is the mission of the king. Now, this next statement that he made in this article has just been 
sticking with me now for weeks, and I can't get it out of my head, so I'm going to share it with you. And if you don't think it's as profound as I do, don't tell me. (laughs) He says this, embracing the otherworldliness of the church so the church, not of, not like this world, embracing the otherworldliness of the church as an institution may seem like a recipe for its ultimate demise and impotence. Yet, it is precisely because the church does not derive its relevance from the world that it can be relevant to the world. Why? The ascended Christ makes the church relevant because Jesus is the world's future. Everything the church does and enacts and becomes, all the things that are working in and through the church are foretastes of the way things really ought to be. It is a foretaste of the world that is to come. It is what the world was made for. It was what the world was designed for. And it is where the world is going. Therefore, to the degree that the church declares, demonstrates, embodies the resurrected, ascended life of Jesus, the church becomes relevant to the world because Jesus is the future of the world. Pretty profound. So what do we get out of this? Well, if the significance of the incarnation was found and brought to you by the letter I, sorry, I'm watching too much Sesame Street. Um, What we get because of the incarnation brought to you then by the letter P. I'll give you the list. We get a priest to intercede for us, power of Christ within us, and the gospel message to proclaim. Okay? Okay. That's where we're going as we kind of um, move towards um, this last part here. A priest to intercede for us, power of Christ within us, the gospel message to proclaim. So let's consider this. How does the ascended Jesus bless us and exercise his dominion? One of the ways he does so is is that he does so um, as an intercessor. He does this as our high priest. So... Um, listen to what Dr. Robert Weber says in his book, Ancient Future Worship. The writer of Hebrews has a profound understanding of the work of Jesus Christ as our high priest. In chapters 8 through 10, he compares the work of the high priest in the Old Testament tabernacle with the work of Jesus. By the way, in the, in the New Testament, you see kind of these uh, major texts that deal with the ascension of Jesus is in Ephesians 4, in Hebrews 8 through 10, and then Acts 1, okay? So we're going to kind of um, borrow a little bit from Hebrews for just a minute because I want you to see this. The Old Testament high priest entered into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifices, as Hebrews 9, 7 says, for himself and for the sins of the people. The sacrifice served as a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. But Christ, 
who is the true and eternal high priest, did not enter the most holy place by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So go back with me for just a minute to Old Testament history. You will remember that in the Old Testament, uh, the Holy of Holies, either in the tabernacle or in the temple, was the place that was, uh, where God was, uh, where the presence of God dwelled, where God's um, holiness, uh, it was, you couldn't go in there if you, were, uh, if you were unrighteous in any way. And so the priest, the high priest, could only go in there once a year after having he himself atoned for his own sins. They tied a, a rope around his, his ankle with bells on it. If the bell stopped ringing, that was the only way they could get him out. Because if somebody else went in there, they died too. And then it becomes very awkward. What was the sacrifice that the high priest took in there? The sacrifice was the unblemished lamb. The pure and spotless lamb sacrificed on the altar for the sins of the people. And this was done year after year after year after year. Not because it actually forgave people of their sins, but because it was a type and a shadow of something to come. What was the thing to come? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The type of the thing to come was Jesus. So having obtained redemption, having made right the debt of sin that was between God and man, having paid for our sin and granted us his righteousness, Jesus now is the one that goes to the holiest place where God's presence is. Having he himself been made the righteous lamb of God, also now the high priest. Dr. Weber goes on. Jesus ascended. Uh, Jesus ascends in order to continue his work as our eternal intercessor. The Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews writer proclaims, now there have been many kinds, many types of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The work of Christ on our behalf is eternal. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not man, Jesus Christ, this man who is God participated in our humanity to die for us and to be resurrected for us. And he now has ascended to the very throne of God to continually represent us to the Father. He who did everything that ever needed to be done to save us now continually stands before the Father interceding for us. Beloved, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My, our names are graven on his hands and written on his heart as we sing him before the throne of God above. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Don't lose this. You have an advocate. Here's the problem. The problem is all around you every day are things that pretend like they'll advocate for, advocate for you, and they won't. They'll just kill you. They'll just kill you. But you have a priest an advocate, one in Jesus, who has not forgotten nor forsaken you. So not only do we get out of this, um, not only do we get this, um, this priest whose name is love, we also get power. Um, there's a joke running around that the only Greek word that uh, pastors who have forgotten most of their Greek can remember is the word for power, which is dunamis, which is where we get dynamite. I see why that works, by the way. Because I don't even have to get my lexicon out. I can remember that one. Um, but I don't necessarily want to talk about uh, the Spirit in depth in this sermon uh, because we're going to uh, talk about the Spirit more on uh, the first Sunday in August when I get back from uh, vacation with the family. We'll actually give a whole sermon at that point to the Holy Spirit. But I do want to say this. Um, not only do we get a high priest, but we also get the power of Christ as well. Um, his disciples asked him, is it this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the next thing that we get out of the ascension is that we get power. As one author put it, that Jesus, that he ascended not to leave us, but to take his throne in heaven where he will actively rule and reign over this world, where the presence of his wounded human flesh guarantees our entrance into that same home, where he sends the, the spirit, the comforter, so that the spirit of Christ can be at work in every dimension of his kingdom not just one place at one time. This is where the power of the church came from. It is no longer Christ beside his people. It is now Christ within his people. There is a much greater power now that you and I experience as, as um, sons and daughters who have been united with Jesus as part of his resurrected life that the disciples would have known during Jesus' earthly life. Because the spirit of Christ, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that has now been sent into the world and is now living inside God's people. Which is why then we get this third thing that we get out of the ascension. And that is a gospel message to be proclaimed. Now, Christians borrowed the word gospel. It was not a word that, uh, that would have been uh, in the Jewish tradition. Typically, gospel um, would have been used as a word uh, to denote the announcement of the uh, assumption of a ruler to a throne. So this would have been the herald would have gone out and declared news. You didn't get a vote, so it doesn't matter if you didn't elect them. 
they're still ruler, and they're just announcing that news. But it was typically for uh, a Roman emperor or someone where this good news would have rang out. Except now. Except now the church has begun adopting this word, this word euangelion, this word gospel, this word good news, pronouncement of a king and the assumption of a throne and good news because you didn't choose him. He chose you. You didn't elect him. He saw you and loved you before you could ever mess it up. And he said, you're mine. That's the king, Jesus, that now is seated at God's right hand, ruling and reigning. And this is the thing that the disciples and you and I and this institution of the church are now being sent out to declare into the world. It is what Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Beloved, the fact that you and I are sitting here today declaring Jesus, praising his name, exalting in the salvation that has been freely given that we could never earn or merit on our own is a testimony to the fact that what Jesus said is true because we are the ends of the earth. It's not ours by birthright. It's ours by grace. It's here because the Spirit was blowing and people were going and declaring this good news, announcing that Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning and he's good. When he says, you're going to be my witnesses, he doesn't mean you're going to be my revolutionaries not my politicians, not my soldiers. The kingdom is going to expand, but not through violence and coercion. Instead, it's going to come through proclamation and demonstration. The Greek word for witness is the same word that we get the word martyr from. So when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, could have just as easily translated that for you will be my martyrs when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as you go to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth the fact that we have lived in a time and space that was as as one pastor called it a an age of great Christian exceptionalism where the gospel went largely unhindered is not the way it has always been. And it certainly is not likely the way it's going to continue to be. So why then? Why? Because the church exists. You and I exist because Jesus is alive because Jesus is alive and because his purposes will be realized, we exist on mission. This means that when we declare 
and demonstrate the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. It will likely not be to their applause or their accolades, but more likely than not to their apathy and antagonism, at least initially. Don't be surprised when the kingdom of God is met with a so what or a who are you. But remember, the gospel is relevant even though it be otherworldly because Jesus is the future of the world. And beloved, there are men and women and boys and girls all around us here in Carrollton, in the suburbs in which we live, in the state of Texas, in the United States, and in the world for whom Jesus has shed his blood. And there is not a single person for whom Jesus died, that will not be saved to everlasting life. The way that happens is the messengers of God go out as the witnesses of God, sometimes to be the martyrs of God, in in order to declare the gospel of God, that Jesus has conquered every other thing that could kill us. Jesus has conquered sin and death. And Jesus, our good and gracious brother and king, has offered his life in exchange for ours. Christ's gifts to the church are the basis of its institutional power and mission in the world. The end, here's the reason why spiritual gifts are given. Not so that you can take an inventory in Sunday school. Not so that you can get a badge made or a bumper sticker. Not encouragement. My gift is not encouragement. I can own that, it's okay. The reason that gifts are poured out and dispensed to the church is for the sake of giving the church all that it needs to live as an institution on mission, to build up the body of Christ and to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Christ to the world. This is why the church has gifts. This is why the Spirit has been poured out. This is why. So that we would have union with Christ, so that we would have uh, union with one another, and that we would have power that is not of our own. You understand this, right? It is not your gifts. It's not your smarts. It's not your uh, natural ingenuities and talents that you bring to the table that make the mission of God possible. It is the Spirit of God that's at work in the people of God, taking you out into the world to be on the mission of God. So before you say, evangelism's not my gift, of course it's not. It's not mine either. And it's not you that's evangelizing. It's the Spirit at work within you as you go and offer, uh, demonstrate the gifts of the gospel to your neighbors and the nations and the next generation. It's not your wise words that save anyone. It's not your convincing argument. The end to which the, the, the gifts are given to the, uh, is for the formation of a new humanity around the person of Jesus Christ. This means, zone back in, this means the church is God's workshop for a new humanity. 
as these gifts of ascension are now being exercised in this workshop, the energies, practices, and cultures of new creation are released into the life of a community to form it more and more into the image of Jesus' heavenly humanity. This means the church plays an indispensable and irreplaceable role in the formation of this new humanity. If I may say a few things about this without stealing thunder from myself when we get to and the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, right? I'm not going to try and steal so much for myself for communion of the saints, but let me say this. We say that worship with God's people on Sunday morning, this is not just an optional activity because the church at the end of the day is not, uh, this is not a club of like-minded people. This isn't the rotary. What it means we're the church It means that because Jesus is alive and because his spirit has been sent, we are knit together in Christ's heavenly body. We are knit together as members of this one flesh in Jesus. It means that we are all now united as part of a family. And this church, this institution is our home. It means that we cannot be tacit or incidental players in the church. We don't just kind of come in and come out when we choose. It is the church that Jesus gave his life for. It is his people. And if you say, I don't need the church, what you're really saying is, I don't need Jesus. And then you say, well, that whole workshop thing, that is not happening at all. Well, then maybe, friends, that's the first place that we start when it comes to things that we would need to repent of. If we're not seeing this workshop of a new humanity happening as the gifts of God are being worked out through the people of God, by the Spirit of God, through the grace of God, to the glory of God, and we're not seeing that here in the church, then maybe, just maybe, that's the first spot where we stop and repent and go, Lord, search my heart and know me. But we don't do so out of guilt or compulsion or fear. We do so with confidence because our great high priest intercedes for us, sent his spirit to empower us, and through him working in us gives these dumb lips and this slow mind gospel truth to declare to you and you and you and to our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. And if that's not happening, then we should ask, why not? And we shouldn't be satisfied until we have said, God, pour out your spirit once more like it was poured out on your church in Acts. Would there be a holy fire that would burn within us where we would not be satisfied to simply say, well, that's fine. What's on Netflix? God has given us, his people, the message as his mouthpiece to the world so that his name would be magnified. May God help us 
It's not just a if he will, but we know he will because our advocate, our high priest, stands before the throne of heaven interceding for us. This same Jesus of Nazareth, whom you saw, who was taken up from your eyes, will come again just as he went. Hallelujah.